Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. Good guy coming last place. Nice. Smell that dope when I pass by. Oh. I let my money at a fast pace. All right, welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I'm your host, Locke, and this is the podcast where we drink, smoke, and bullshit about the life of a historic criminal. Now we're talking outlaws and gangsters. We're not going to cover too many serial killers. That's just a little bit dark for me, and this ain't no true crime podcast. Honestly, you can't call this a history podcast because I'm no historian. I'm just a history fan that does some research and bullshits about it with his friends. So speaking of my friends, let me introduce you to my co-host. So first with us today, we got J-Bone. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And also with us today, we got Tone. What up? And then running with four mics today, we got Tank. Hey, guys. All right. So, Tone, you had the most interesting of the drinks today. So why don't you kick us off? Uh, I got here a Fudgy Kruger oatmeal stout from Big Lakes Brewery. You know, local shit. How is it? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, just like a stout. Yeah. I like stouts on an IPA, so up my alley. Cool little Freddy Krueger can. Yep. Got the Freddy Krueger on it. Fudgy Krueger, I mean. <laughs> Dan had one of those recently on the podcast, and he was a big fan of it, too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's going to end up on the list with, like, the Boss Tweed and the uh, the Tiramisu Stout. The Retur- Return Offenders. Right. <laughs> what about you, J-Bone? Uh, you speaking of Return Offenders... Uh... I got uh, another local brewery, Founders. I went with Sentinel IPA. I like the Founders Centennial IPA. It's a good one. And price is right. Like, I go grab one of those. It's not a tall boy exactly, a 24, but it's like a 20 ounce. It's a 19 point something ounce, yeah. Yeah, but I grab like one of those in an all-day IPA, and I'm out the door for like $4.24. Uh You know what I mean? $4.24. And, you know, I'm I'm short a couple of ounces on if I'd have got two tall boys and Bud Light, but I got... A lot more fucking bang oh. for my but butt. it's a medium heavy hitter, you know. It's a seven point two or something like that alcohol. So yeah, you're definitely gonna get more out of it than a Bud Light. Yeah, I stayed local with Shorts Brew too. I went with a stout, but I went with like a little baby stout. So I'm back with my furry buddy, light stout. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I read about that one. I never tried it though. How was you it? had that before, right? Yeah, I had it. It's a it's a diet beer. You know, the holidays. I figure I should watch my weight a little bit, but I don't want to. You know, I like craft beers, and Shorts Brew is kind of a lifesaver. With They have a whole pack of, they got a lager, a stout, IPA, all light style. So it's like, if you want to drink a light beer and have a craft beer, you could do both. pH right. balance for the fat dude. <laughs> <laughs> like always, we got to take the time to thank everybody, all the show contributors. So we got to make sure we thank Sixfo Swaino for letting us use his music in the intro. And then Cancer. We use his song in the mid-roll. He also did our logo, which you can see at his Instagram, at Eyes Bleed Defiance. On Instagram, you can also follow us at Bad Guy Podcast on Instagram or Bad Guy Podcast on TikTok. And we got the Twitter. I would appreciate if somebody tweeted us because we don't ever use it. We don't know how. But if you tweeted us, we can tweet you back. Our Twitter is Bad Guy Pod. And then if you have a hard time finding anybody's links, our social media, Six Fosuino social media, Cancer social media, you can go to the website, badguypodcast.com, and you can click episodes. We get a lot of people that are into gangsters or they're into criminal stuff, but they don't know how podcast works. They're not necessarily tech savvy, and uh, they can't figure it out. If you go to the website, you can click all the links straight from there. So go check that out. So when we record this, we've now been doing this podcast for about a year. Now, I know we didn't start releasing them until February. 
but we were recording them well before that. It just took that long. It took months to figure out how to record them and edit them and release them and do everything. So February is the actual release date, but it took you guys see how I do stuff. It took me months to figure out how to get that. So we've been recording the show for about a year now. Congratulations. Thanks. And we dropped our first, we've dropped our first couple episodes and we got 60 listeners. And I was like, fuck yeah, we made it. (laughs) Big time. 60 people listened to us. One of them was in Canada. This is fucking sick, bro. We're fucking, we've hit, we fucking hit the big time. We're invading the shores of Windsor. Fuck (laughs) But now, uh, within that year, we've grown to thousands of listeners. We've got tens of thousands of downloads. Uh, we were talking earlier, Instagram, we got 1,800 followers on Instagram, and then we almost got 20,000 on TikTok. And we've had a lot of new listeners coming in. So we appreciate everybody for listening to our, <laughs> yeah. our podcast that had 60, 60 listeners mm-hmm. talking about drinking and fucking weird killers that I've heard of and shit. Doing everything I've been doing my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> Just sharing it with you guys now. Yeah. It's the same thing we've been doing since we were teenagers. <laughs> Just now people in Rwanda listen to us when we yes. do it. <laughs> do we have any haters yet, though? Oh, uh, yeah, we have. Oh, oh we, we made it. <laughs> it's so funny you said that because I thought that myself. We officially made it. We got our first one-star review on on iTunes. Fuck yeah. You haven't officially made it until somebody's <laughs> hated on you. So, yes, we've expanded to all 50 states, 30-something countries, and found a hater. Hell yeah. Don't troll me, bro. <laughs> Don't troll me. Watch out, fucking Joe Rogan. So I would say with the one, we got a lot of good feedback. We, You know, we got a real good listener base. A lot of people love that we cover these people that have lesser-known stories that you haven't heard of. Exactly. And that's kind of what we bring to the table. That's kind of cool. But a lot of people say, cover some big guys. What I figured is looking at doing this for a year, where we're at, we're going in the holidays and everything's kind of up in the air. You know, we're still dealing with the corona, so getting together records tough. Uh, <laughs> we got the, uh, you know, holidays coming up, so I figured this is a perfect time to just wrap up the first season. And then people been asking for us to cover somebody big, so I figured the best thing to do is we'll end a season finale covering one of the big names that people want for the first time. Well, sure. All right. So today, the bad guy we're going to be covering is Alphonse Gabriel Capone. This ain't negotiation time. This is Scarface, final scene, fucking bazookas under each arm. Say hello to my little friend. Hmm. Also known as Uncle Al. (laughs) I figured Al Capone would be the best guy to cover as a season finale of the first season, only because... If you look at the people we've covered, we're from Detroit, which is the Midwest. So we've covered a lot of Midwest-based guys. Mm-hmm. And almost something like 20% of the people we've covered have touched Al Capone right. in some version or right, another. Right. So we figured we should wrap it up with him. Alphonse Gabriel Capone, a.k.a. Scarface, a.k.a. Snorky. Al Capone was born in Brooklyn, New York, January 17, 1899, to immigrant parents from Naples, Italy. He was one of nine siblings. It was seven boys and two girls, one of which died as a baby. Late 1800s, early 1900s. If you have nine kids, mm-hmm. a couple of them might not make it. Right. Yeah. A couple of them going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> it's the equivalent of today's box of puppies. Like, hey, they're not all going to make it. Al Capone's oldest brother, Vincenzo, would change his name to Richard Hart and move to Nebraska where he became a prohibition agent. He always distanced himself from the exploits of his notorious brother. 
Looks like Roy Rogers, a fucking fifties cowboy. Yeah. So Al just went completely the other way. Well, I think the way this goes is this guy went completely the other way. Mm. You'll see as the story goes on. He's definitely more of the black sheep than uh, Al was. Al was. His parents were immigrants from Naples. His dad was a barber. His mom was a seamstress. He was the first of their kids that was born in America. As a child, Al Capone was always large and strong for his age. He liked to fight, and he was good at it. He had chronic sinus infections and nasal issues, which caused his nose to run, especially in the winter. In the Brooklyn neighborhood, there was a lot of Irish kids that liked to fight, too. So the ones that were always looking for a fight, they would call him Spaghetti, because his nose was always running all (laughs) But you could tell in that first picture that you showed us, man, his hands were, uh, he had some meaty hands, man. So <laughs> you could tell he threw down because all of his fingers were super wide. And like, I mean, there was very little uh, transition, man. It looked like his whole fist was a knuckle. Yeah. <laughs> it was some face punching hands. Yep. Yeah, I mean, maybe it didn't take much for spaghetti to punch you in your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would call him spaghetti and that would cause a lot of fights, which also may have worsened the sinus and nasal condition mm-hmm. condition because you're getting punched in your face yeah right. that was like before they could do all those fancy sinus surgeries like every other fight he's like it got better oh it got worse <laughs> it got better oh it got worse i like to hang out at the naval yards and watch marine recruits drill their steps and he would hang out and harass them from the other side of the fence I read a story in John Kobler's book, Capone, The Life and World of Al Capone, which is a real good book. And it's got a quote from a Marine corporal who was talking about a time when Al was 10, but he was as big as a 14-year-old. And he was on the other side of the fence with his buddies, and he was ha- harassing the Marine recruits. He would, like, make fun of the ones that were out of step and stuff like that. And one time a Marine got pissed and acted like he was going to spit on the boys. And Al flipped out and tried to fight the recruit. So his corporal intervenes, breaks it up, and he yells at his Marine guys and sends them off. And he tells the boys, he says, hey... If any of my guys ever really spit on you or mess with you, you let me know and I'll report them. Al was quoted as saying, there's no need for a report. Just let them outside this fence and I'll take care of them. (laughs) Damn. Ten. (laughs) Ten. (laughs) So that's why his brother turned, man. He was like, man, this kid's been messed up since he was ten years old, man. I'm going to... He's going to get us, our whole family, into some shit one day. Ten years old out there uh, taunting the Marines. The Marine Corporal also said that he remembered at the time thinking this guy could be a good Marine if the right recruiter could get a hold of him before the streets gets its hooks into him. Even though he turned out bad, it's like that guy's probably 100% correct. If he would have got his hooks into him, he, he probably would have been a good uh, soldier, I guess you could say. Well, because in theory, he did turn out to be a good soldier, just ended up on a different team. All right. Yeah. Well, you see what happens when the recruiter gets a hold of him before the streets do? That guy's called George Patton. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. At a young age, he showed promise as a student, but he lacked discipline and ability to follow rules. At 14 years old, after being disciplined, he struck a female teacher and never returned to school afterwards. How old did you say he was? He was 14. Okay. That's but he was the size of a 19-year-old. Yeah, I was going to say, now he's 18. <laughs> now he looks 18. But... But yeah, he's 14 on the Al Capone curve. <laughs> Busted knuckles on both he hands. He was 14 the size of a medium Marine. <laughs> <laughs> But he was starting to go to down that course. It said in sixth grade, he was reported as attending 33 out of 90 days of school. So All right. he got his first job at a candy shop and then as a bowling pin setter. Eventually, he took to just hanging out in pool halls. He became an amazing pool player and was considered a neighborhood champ. Al Capone actually be a good player the whole rest of his life after that. That's pretty cool. He was cool. dope on the tables. I didn't know that part about Al. 
Now, one of the other good resources I found, there's a website called myalcaponemuseum.com, and it's a guy named Mario Gomes. You go to his website. If you're in Al Capone, you'll end up like Wikipedia when you start clicking through links. Yeah. Because yeah. you could just click every different link as you go through, and it's all real good. It's all primary sourced. From 1916 to 1918, Al Capone played semi-pro baseball with his brother Ralph. So he started off his brother Ralph Capone was a real good baseball player, and Al started going with him. And then eventually he turned into a real good player. So in 1916, they played for the St. Michael's Civic Club before Al started his own team, which was called the Al Capone All-Stars. Now, if you look at some of these rundown here, you see yeah, Al Capone pitching and batting third, with Ralph Capone playing first base and batting cleanup. He also had his cousin, Charlie Fischetti, who would grow up to be one of his uh, top enforcers, the <laughs> Fischetti brothers. He played third base for them. See, they're just like normal people, man. They yeah. just want to play ball and hang out with their bros after work. This game right here against Lockport, he struck out 15 in front of 3,000 people. Wow. wow. That's like a real stat. Yeah. Like. yeah. Man, oh, Al Capone was a jack of all trades. He'd whip your ass on the pool table, take you out on the baseball field grassroots uh, organization straight up i mean that's you know back in that day though man like if you were a teenage boy you were probably playing some some ball somewhere you know what i mean whether it was in the alley with some sticks or or something so i mean you know it's not like nowadays where they're like trying to get kids to play baseball and stuff i think that was one of those sports back then where that was like the popular new sport that's when it was national pastime still so around the same time he abandoned youth gangs and he became a member of the five points gang this was towards the end as the Five Points Gang was starting to fall off. But in its prime, the Five Points Gang boasted members like Johnny Torrio before he left for Chicago in 1909, Lucky Luciano, Johnny Spanish, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and Frankie Yale. They should have been called the Capones All-Stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Later on, they were. Right. But yeah, so that's like, what was the... Uh, the West Coast offense, the whatever, the tree. Yeah, I know what you're oh, talking about. Oh, yeah. The, the, the Wal Bill Walsh tree. Yeah, yeah, the Bill Walsh tree. That was like the five points gang of gangsters. Like yeah. anybody that was ever a gangster started off in the five points gang. And I mean, it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the times, you know, because I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't organizations already churning out bad guy shit at that point in time. But it was it was the time where if you were coming up like, damn, all those dudes and like, yeah, man, because that was the time where it was kind of in its infancy, the in, wild infancy. west out there, yeah, yeah. like they weren't organized yeah. under one umbrella. It was a bunch of little separate things. Eventually, Frankie Yale, a former Johnny Torrio protege, takes Capone under his wing. Frankie L is a powerful racketeer in Brooklyn, and he gives Capone a job at his bar, the Harvard Inn in Coney Island, where he works as a bartender and bouncer. Around the same time, he meets an Irish girl named Mae Coughlin, and she was described as tall, pretty, and blonde. Capone seemed to have a thing for Irish girls, so he meets Mae Coughlin, he falls in love. And then December 1918 becomes a major turning point in Al Capone's life. So three things happen. On December 4th, his son, Albert Sonny Capone, was born. When Sonny was born, he had trouble with his ears. He would soon eventually lose most of his hearings in his left ear. But he still grew up. He was a good dude, good father, you know, law-abiding citizen his whole life. Four days after Sonny was born, on December 8, 1918, Al Capone was slashed across his face three times by Frank Galluccio for insulting his sister. 
Now, after a sit-down, Al was told that he wasn't allowed to retaliate against Galuccio. And it was kind of his first introduction to gangster life. It was just kind of one of these things where it was like, you can't do nothing. Yeah. You know? Dun, dun. <laughs> Get over it, kid. Al Capone hated these scars. Now, most people thought that they made him look like a badass when he was a gangster because they were pretty impressive scars. Yeah. He hated them. It earned him the nickname Scarface, and he hated the nickname. Oh, gotcha. So that's why you don't have a lot of pictures on this other side. He tried to get pictures from the other angle. As he got older, when he was big time, he used to powder that side of his face so that it would take, like, the shine off the scars. He did like the nickname Snorky, and and Snorky meant dapper at the time. The reason they started calling him Snorky, so anytime he's seen little kids, he liked to call him Snorky. And especially Sonny. He'd call Sonny Snorky all the time. It was like his pet name for him. And then he would say it so much, the other guys in the outfit started calling him Sonny Little Snorky and Al Big Snorky. And then eventually it just went from Big Snorky to Snorky. Pinch it hold myself in this badass nickname. <laughs> if I say Snorky enough, they'll call me it. God damn it. Well, and see, for, for real though, I didn't know until just now, you know, I, I didn't realize that uh, that was... You know what I'm saying, crispy, snappy, uh, you know, snazzy, whatever. Yeah, that's a better term, like, because Dapper's even kind of um, almost out of dialect now. Like, so that's 1919 version of crispy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and shit. That brother Snorky right there, son. He just coming off the block, got the new fedora. <laughs> snorky as hell. I'm probably dated on crispy for all I know, man. Well, yeah, well, you definitely are. Like, you don't know what these brats are saying now. <laughs> By nature of the fact that you just said crispy means they're no longer yeah, saying exactly. Yeah, exactly. I got you. Pipe down, Grandpa. <laughs> he ended up getting 30 stitches to close up those scars on his face. And it was all because he insulted... Uh, was it Cat Gallu- calling Duke's Gallucci sister? sister. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, Frank Galluccio's sister. Thanks. Said she had a nice ass, wasn't it? Yeah, said she had a nice ass. Frank Galluccio was much smaller. Al Capone was a big dude, as we've covered, could fight. Yeah. Apparently Frank Galluccio wasn't no ho though. Started fuck the and in the story shit. too, yeah. it wasn't Pulling like in shank. modern times where like I guess it's still obviously it's still inappropriate, but it wasn't like damn girl got a nice can right there. It was like he told the girl, he told Galluccio's sister, look, I mean this as a compliment. You have a really nice ass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how nice how proper you could say that. So then but yeah, Frank's like, then. you know what? Pulls out the switchblade. I got something for you, Ash. I don't think you can get away with it. That's exactly what it was. I think the quote was something to the effect of, he said, uh, and and believe me, for me, that's a compliment. Or something like that. All due (laughs) respect. You got one of the best cans here on the island. Nowadays, they'll just bend over and start twerking. Right? Right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's an app for that. Yeah, there's an app. (laughs) Yeah, you couldn't let you couldn't let somebody do that though in public back then, if especially in the gangster world. Not only did he not do nothing, once he made it big, when he would come back and visit, when he'd come back to New York, he'd often use Frank Galluccio as security. Really? Yeah. But as much as he hated the scars, one of the things that he would often claim is that he got them serving in World War One as part of the Lost Battalion. We've all known that he's a gangster and a killer and stuff, but in the modern climate, like people's going to listen to this and be like, wait a minute. Al Capone was stealing he valor. Think, he fucked that serving guy. Serving our country. Fuck no. that. Back then, you know, uh, Gallucci's sitting there like, is that really what he told you? Let me tell you a different story. He's like, come on, man. When he comes around, I'm his muscle. <laughs> so Al gets his face stitched up. And then Al and May were married on December 30th, 1918. Here's May. Oh, what a bell. Yeah. What a looker. 
I ran out of room. I had so many pictures that I didn't get them in there. But so these are pictures of Young May Capone, which is pretty hard to find. These also, as you can see, my Al Capone Museum. So those won't be on the Instagram either. But like, you know, she was a pretty girl when she was young and stuff like that. But there's pictures of her covering her face, getting off a taxi, leaving Alcatraz, going to visit him. So not only was she pretty. She's loyal. Talk about a ride or die. Yeah. You know She's what I loyal. mean? Like, yeah. These are the pictures I went with. I had pictures of her covering her face on her way to a fucking island in the middle of the ocean to go visit Al at one point. So. <laughs> they loved each other. They had a great family life. They loved Sonny. Al Capone's family didn't approve at first because they didn't like her because she wasn't Italian. After they got married December 30th, 1918, Al Capone gave up baseball he would play golf the rest of his life, though. He was a pretty good golfer. So he never played baseball again. He took up golf. But basically, he decided, fuck the dumb shit, and decided to go pro. That's funny you said that, though. He chose to go pro. He's like, I'm semi-pro in two facets of life right now. <laughs> which, <laughs> which one should I take the next step Pick in? Pick a path. Pick a path. Like, wait, man. You just, you're stepping into the one. <laughs> that was when his brother decided to uh, distance himself is when he gave up on baseball. He's like, look, man, you got stabbed the fuck up last week, and now you want to give up baseball and, 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 and go pro in the gangster shit? Like, fuck this. I'm going to be a... <laughs> I'm going to Nebraska. Yep. <laughs> Capone made his bones collecting for Frankie L. Legend has it his first murder was Thomas Perota, who wouldn't pay up $1,500. By late 1919, Capone was a suspect in two murders and then was wanted for questioning for beating a guy that was in the hospital and they were waiting to see if the guy was going to die or not to find out if he was going to be an assault or a murder charge. Frankie L. was like, look, we got to get you out of here. It's too much heat. You're going to get popped. He reaches out to his former boss, Johnny Torrio. He's like, look, I got a kid. need to hide out. You use some help. Johnny Torrio said, I can always use drivers and muscles. Send them over. You hear a lot, because they were both in the Five Points gang, and they'll say that Johnny Torrio knew Al from the Five Points game and called for him and had him sent to Chicago. In reality, he went to Chicago in 1909. So even Before though, them. Yeah. I mean, in 1909, that's when Al Capone was 10, starting fights at the fucking Navy, Navy yard. yard and shit. You know, Johnny Torrio always kept a foot in Brooklyn while he was in Chicago, but he didn't know Al like that. So Johnny Torrio never sent for Al. No. Frankie Yale sent Al to Johnny Torrio. Mm. It's like, we got this prospect. We need <laughs> to send him out. We need to send him out west so he doesn't get into trouble. How good is he? He's an all-star. He just yeah. he had his own team called the Al Capone All-Stars. <laughs> so Al Capone arrived in Chicago. He's 5'10", 200 pounds, and scrappy. He worked for Torrio as a driver and security. Johnny Torrio's big spot at the time was the Four Deuces, 2222 Wabash Avenue. It was a giant building with multiple floors, and he had a floor of liquor, a floor of dancing, a floor of prostitution, a floor of gambling. You know, he just had everything under one roof. He was kind of like the pioneer of doing that. And he was still working for Big Jim, but Big Jim had his other stuff going on. That was kind of like Johnny Torrio's baby. So he brought Al Capone in there. Al Capone worked in the Four Deuces as a bartender and a bouncer. And there's stories of Al Capone when he first came to Chicago working as a barker in front of the Four Deuces on Wabash Avenue. Hmm. We got some beautiful ladies up in here tonight. You guys looking for some action? Man, that place sound like Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Four fucking deuces, bro. What do you want? And but back shit. then, back then it probably was a place of happiness for many people. Fuck yeah. <laughs> this is the real Magic Kingdom. <laughs> 
Man, I could really use a shot, a blowjob, and play some poker. This is it, man. We got your your spot. Man, you just think, imagine if we had that place. You think we do? It's called Vegas. <laughs> you say game-winning home runs and fifteen strikeouts is fun. Have you been to the Four Deuces? A lot of people think working at Four Deuces, as we all know, obviously he gets syphilis, right? El Capone does. A lot of people think working at the Four Deuces was where he got syphilis. Some people think he got it working for Frankie Yale in Brooklyn, because sometimes people say the fact that him and May never had any more kids, that they both had it and it caused like sterility. Oh, and then okay. some people say that also might have been what caused the problems with uh, His Sonny's ear. ears. Mm. Who knows? He might have got it when he went to Chicago and was working at the brothel and the Four Deuces. He might have had it going into it. That nobody knows. Because by the time they found out he had it, he'd had it for so long that nobody knew. They also say he probably could have had treatments and got it fixed. But he was just always like, nah, I'm good. Hmm. He was the original anti-vaxxer. Yeah. I'm just stressed out. On January 17, 1920, on Al Capone's 21st birthday, Prohibition went into effect and the United States went dry. For some. It's my favorite prohibition fact of all is that start out El Capone's 21st birthday. The irony right. of the whole thing, like yeah. the biggest bootlegger, like entrepreneur on his 21st birthday, that right there, that doom and gloom, the country went dry. Like, well, <laughs> some people. I wrote that. Bulb, I told you I'm some a Some people, light bulbs went off. They were like, about to be rich as fuck. This is the it was time. the oil Later on, when everybody bought a car and you needed gas, mm. so if you owned an oil field, like shit, hey, we legally are going to quit making whiskey and beer. But if anybody knows anybody out there doing shit in the backwoods of Kentucky, <laughs> just got to pay triple now. So Johnny Torrio wanted to move into manufacturing and distribution. So he put together this real elaborate plan. And once Prohibition kicked in, there's all these factories and plants that had to shut down. So Torrio had worked out the details on a plan to acquire, by via purchase, lease, or theft, breweries and bottling plants, which he could fire up immediately into producing high-quality beer while bottling legal drinks as a front to launder the money. Big Jim refused. Hmm. There's no reason why there's a market for this right now. I don't know why Big Jim didn't want to delve into that. It was like millions just sitting there. A couple of things. He had his money. He got his bread and butter in prostitution. And he had Colosimo's, his restaurant. That was his baby. And then he had just recently left his fat, ugly wife for a 19-year-old showgirl. And he was really into that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that was the time when he started doing uh, questionable shit, wasn't it? Like, he started well, softening it up, I guess, yeah. in, in, in his colleagues' eyes. On May 11th, 1920, Big Jim Colosimo was killed in the coat room of his restaurant. Commonly believed to have been committed by Frankie Yale on orders from Johnny Torrio. After the death of Big Jim Colosimo, Johnny Torrio took over all the rackets and acquired most of the vacant breweries and bottling plants. Oh, his original plan. Yeah. He then became the largest beer distributor in Chicago. In November 14, 1920, Al Capone's father died and they had a huge funeral in Brooklyn. All seven of his sons came back and worked as the pallbearers. After his dad's funeral... Al Capone returned to Chicago, and he moved his mom and his entire family back with him. Oh, he took everybody back, huh? Yeah. They all lived in one big crib, too. Um, so Johnny Torrio mentors Al and teaches him the business side of organized crime. He teaches him how to run the business and how to pay off politicians. He also taught him how to talk, how to dress, and how to negotiate. All so right. he, tried, he had a thick Brooklyn accent. 
you know, Johnny Torrio spent a lot of time tell, teaching him how to not talk with a Brooklyn accent, which is weird because that's the same thing Arnold Rothstein did for Lucky Luciano in New York. Like, they were these street kids. I think Lucky Luciano wasn't, he was from uh, the east side. He wasn't from Brooklyn, but they had these thick accents and they worked for these gang bosses that are like, hey, don't talk like that. You it's know? not proper. Well, it makes sense. I mean, they're trying to uh, round Capone into the professional uh, gangster that they drafted him to be. Yeah. You know, they're like, you come with the needed skills of of violence and you know being able to knock a motherfucker out. We're gonna get, we're gonna teach you the business side, dapper you up. We we get the Hulk. We got the Hulk smashed down. <laughs> let's uh, now let's round this out a little bit. You how to fucking talk. <laughs> so Al manages brothels and gambling dens. He ran beer truck convoys. Uh, a couple times he got arrested under his favorite alias, Al Brown. Al Brown. <laughs> Al Brown. <laughs> I always wanted to blend in more with, with the last names of, of other people. I'm going to pick Brown. That, that's a good yeah. non-Italian last My name. My name is Alphonse Brown. And not just <laughs> <laughs> Isn't, well, I don't know, man. Is Brown is definitely not an Irish last name. I'm it's assuming. a Jewish name. Okay. There's all kinds of documentation of him getting arrested under the name Al Brown. One time was for drinking and driving, crashing into somebody, and then waving his gun in their face. <laughs> Get rid of his accent. He's still the Italian Hulk. It's like some Heath Ledger Joker shit. But he eventually gets it all under control. You know, he kind of puts it all together, and he quickly rises to the position of Toriel's number two. He was like his golden boy. Toriel fucking loved him. Uh, L also brought in his two oldest brothers. Well, the two oldest brothers that weren't being cowboys in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, it was Ralph Capone became known as Bottles because he ran most of the distribution operations, both legal and illegal. It's an awesome name. Bottles. Yeah. <laughs> and his brother Frank, who would work on the political side. He was better looking and calm demeanored, and he'd work on the political connections. He was their Kennedy, if you will. So cool. here's Ralph and Frank. So looking at the pictures of these two goes to show you how shitty a sport baseball is. So if you look at these two and you're going to say one of these two is really good at a sport, you, you'd be like, oh, well, it's got to be this. Right, right. Yeah, it's got to be this athletic dude, right? Like, no fucking meat jowls over there <laughs> <laughs> was out there at first base fucking raking. If you, if you knock it out of the park, you don't got to run fast. That's right. Just jog around these the, bases. The Maytag maintenance guy? That yeah. was like... <laughs> He was the all-star? That was, I think, and that's funny, because I've always been, like, a, a meat-jowly kind of guy, but, and uh, baseball was, like, the sport <laughs> I was the best at and shit. I mean, Would all... you play first base? Yep. First base. Yep. All the first meaty base dudes were good at baseball, though, yeah. right? Just put your weight into it, young man. Babe Root. Yep. Mark McGuire. <laughs> I don't know if we got a jersey big enough in the donated jersey bag from last uh, Little League season to fit you, boy, but... You but still, we could use you on this yeah. team. <laughs> now that Johnny Torrio is running the Southside gang, he worked out diplomatic territories and arrangements with all the other major gangs. He was considered a major diplomat. So they ran the Southside. The North Side was ran by Dion O'Banion, which is often called an, an Irish gang. And it was an Irish neighborhood, but he had Jaime Weiss, who was Polish. He had Schemer Drusci, who was a Sicilian. And he had, like, the Gussenbergs, where they top hit men who were German. So it was an Irish neighborhood, and Dion O'Banion was Irish. But then there was the West Side O'Donnells, who were an Irish gang. And then there was the Jenna brothers, who were seven Sicilian brothers that ran Little Italy. 
And they ran the Union Siciliana, which was a very important community organization because it controlled the Sicilian vote. So Torio kind of worked out deals with all these gangs. He's like, you know what? Plenty of money, prohibition, everybody's rich. You know, let's just pass all this money around. Everybody get the territories. I got all the best beer, so I don't really give a fuck what you guys do. You know, take your spots and do what you're going to do. Now, as he's coming up with this diplomatic plan and they have all this beer, what they realize is they don't have any liquor. Now, the Jenna brothers, who were their allies, had a lot of liquor, but they were making like swill liquor, like out of apartments. They would pay people like, hey, set this still up in your apartment and give us this much liquor and we'll pay you. Okay. But it was all trash. You know, it was the kind of stuff that rock makes you go blind. Yeah, rock gut is what it was called. Rock gut liquor. So they were drinking all this rock gut liquor and it's terrible. And they got access to that. But Dion O'Banion's got Irish connections to some real whiskey. So Torrio says, look, we're all working on this partnership and we're all making some money. Why don't we make this deal? You can sell your liquor into my territory if I could sell my beer into your territory. Because the kind of beer that a lot of people were having to sell, when Prohibition went into effect, near beer was still legal. So what some of the people that didn't have access to Johnny Torrio quality beer would do is they would buy the near beer... And then mix it with like the Jenna the rock, rock up liquor to get the alcohol level up and then rebottle it, which it would often get flat. And now they're selling it as beer, but it's really fake beer with gross liquor that's flat. Mm. Oh man, that sounds so terrible. <laughs> like what you would yeah. call, like malt yeah. liquor, like your steel reserve or something like that. Like imagine that's. Yeah, but when there's your as dr- we talk about all these dry craft country. beers and this yeah. amazing stuff that we drink, like, that was like the, it was like this was before there was barrel aged beers right here. This is how we had our barrel aged beer. What you think <laughs> of like how you look down and just think of a natty daddy? That yeah. was what they were like. <laughs> I, hey man, we want a drink and we're in a dry country now, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you, that makes sense. You show up with a natty daddy, they'll slat, snatch it right out yeah, of your fucking like hand a commodity and slam back it and then, shit. Like, hey. So the O'Banions are selling this shit beer. And they're selling this shit liquor. So they're like, we'll make a deal. And O'Banion, he fucking hates these guys, but he's a businessman. So he's like, all right, that makes sense. So they make the deal and they start swapping territories. And now everything's running smooth. The Southside gang uses their political connections to become the largest gangs in Chicago. In 1923, there was a low-level gangster named Joe Howard who assaulted a Capone associate named Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik. Greasy Thumb? <laughs> that's like some shit you'd expect to see on urban dictionary meaning some nasty shit right right that's (laughs) That's a mechanic like yeah it's all greasy thumb (laughs) now uh guzik was a long time capone guy he moved his way like as capone slides his way up the ladder guzik goes with him but the reason he was called greasy thumb was he was real good with money and he handled all the uh bribes So his greasy thumb because he was greasing all the politicians and stuff. Okay, gotcha. The grease wheel. Yeah. yeah. Guzik wasn't big on the muscle side of the business, right? So one day he's out at this bar and this guy Joe Howard keeps fucking with him. So he starts picking on Guzik and beats him up and talks shit about Capone's like you ain't shit, Capone ain't shit, fuck off and chases him out the bar. So Guzik goes and tells Capone like, yeah, it's fucking Joe Howard, man. He's a fucking asshole. He beat me up and shit and. Was running his mouth, and uh, Capone was like, "All right, so let's find out where he is." So they find out where Joe Howard is, and he knows what Johnny Torrio told him is that they're not supposed to just be randomly violent, and you got to find peaceable solutions. So he goes and finds Joe Howard, and he tells him, "You have to apologize for beating up Gussick." And uh, Joe Howard called him a pimp, which 
that was another thing. El Capone didn't like being reminded how much he was into prostitution. He liked prostitution, but it made him feel bad because, you know, he liked his wife. He just liked to cheat on her with yeah. syphilis also. Um, so he called him a pimp and he called him, uh, you know, Italian slurs. Mm-hmm. And uh, Al Capone shot him in the head five times. Oh, well, peaceable only lasts until you start calling names. Well, hey, he gave him a chance. He did. <laughs> he did give him a chance. He tried to dip. No, see, but that's what Johnny was trying to convey to him too. Like, you go that route. You you can end up at the end of my gun, but only if I exhausted all other methods of like trying to resolve this peacefully with either make you apologize to my guy, pay my guy restitution take care of somebody in my guy's family oh you still want to spit on me okay i mean yeah that's all you left me so later in 1923 the mayor that was in their pocket big bill thompson he loses to william deaver who ran on an anti-crime platform he was uh, a reformist and he's like hey prohibition they ain't supposed to be drinking and chicago's all corrupt real fucking giuliani type i'm gonna fix this shit and uh he immediately starts cracking down. He puts cops on the street, starts cracking down these operations, starts shutting down bootlegging operations across Chicago. Busting speakeasies. Like. So everybody takes a loss, but the South Side hits it hard, gets hit hardest because they got the biggest operation. Mm-hmm. You know? So Johnny Torrio starts expanding out of the Chicago area, and he started pioneering kind of what he started with the Four Deuces, which would become Vegas later is roadside brothels so he would just look at long roads where's a reasonable stop off point and put up a spot that's got a restaurant a speakeasy a brothel and a gambling den you know just bam throw it throw it in random spots and shit so he starts popping up these little satellite spots because they're getting chased out of chicago and then eventually they set up shop in the city of cicero which they realized Cicero was still in Cook County. So a lot of their political connections, where they lost them in the city, they still had those county connections. So they still had the sheriff. So they move in on Cicero, and they use their sheriff connections to kind of take shit over. And then they send in Frank Capone. And Frank's described as calm and business-looking with neat suits, good-looking dude. And right off the bat, they send in Frank to Cicero. Right off the bat, he paid off the Cicero committee men and the mayor, Joseph Klena to the point, Joseph Klena worked for the Capones that Al Capone at one point may have kicked Joseph Klena down the, down the stairs of city hall at one point. Oh, okay. Totally. That's like in your pocket when you fucking kick them down the fucking hall or down the stairs and shit. Frank Capone's job was he represented the gang on the town council (laughs) (laughs) city council meeting. Like, all right, and let's hear from the gang. We don't mind the tax millage over here for the the transit, for the public transit, but we got to have something on our end. Uh, Mr. Capone, what what do you think? That's Mr. Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't see any Capones here. In 1924, the Democratic Party ran a candidate against Klena that was also running on a reform platform. So he's basically like, hey, I'm going to take over Cicero and I'm going to kick these Capones back out just like they did in Chicago. And Torrio's like, we ain't doing this a fucking game. We need to win this election. So they turn to Frank and they're like, all right, well, we need to make sure we win this election no matter what. And that was the other side of what Frank did. So he did a lot of paying off people and hanging out with politicians. But the dirty side of fixing elections was on April 1st, 1924, Frank basically let loose the Southside gang on Cicero. What they would do, they shot up campaign headquarters They'd beat up other candidates. They'd go to polling stations and they'd ask people who they were voting for. And if they said they were voting Democrat, they'd beat them up. Or they would take their ballots. And if their ballot wasn't for the right voter, they'd rip them up and throw them away. It was chaos. So they're blowing up campaign headquarters. 
So April 1st, 1924, Cicero just turns into a shit show to the point where by late afternoon, there's politicians asking for help. And Mayor Deaver in Chicago says, well, look, I'll give you 50 off-duty police officers and you could deputize them to go in and take care of it. So all of a sudden you got this group of fucking 50 police officers, but they're not, they don't got to work as police officers because they're just deputized. Mm -hmm. And now they're going on the streets the same way the Southside gang's on the streets. We just turned this fucking... into the Wild West. Yes, it was the Wild West. So April 1st, 1924, Cicero was fucking, is a madhouse, right? Now, by the time they realized what was happening, mobilized these guys, got them deputized, and got them on the street, it was too late. The damage was done, and Clenna ended up getting reelected mayor. But the day wasn't a total uh, win for the Torio crew. So at one point, Frank's hanging outside of a polling election, beating up voters and shit, and a group of deputized officers pulls up. But they're all playing clothes. So he thought it was another gang coming up. So he pulls out his gun and starts busting at him, and the cops fucking shot him up and killed him. Oh, shit. So they win the election, but Frank Capone ends up killed. The death of Frank Capone was devastating to Al. He really throws himself into the gang. He got really close with Jack McGurn. He really took the death of Frank Capone real hard. At the same time, so they get the election, but then the O'Banion gang, they start instigating trouble from every corner. Because they really didn't like the South Side gang, and they liked to fight. And they were pretty confident what they could do. And he started, basically, because they were getting pinched in Chicago still, they went to them and they were kind of like, hey, well, we should get some of the Cicero action, right? And their thing was like, no, our deal in Chicago was in Chicago. Cicero something different. And then they also had to deal with prostitution that they struggled with. Uh, Dion O'Banion was like a devout Catholic and he didn't like prostitution. So at some point they're like, well, maybe we'll give you a piece of Cicero, but we move in some prostitution rings. And he's like, no, no prostitution is going to be in my territory. So O'Banion just wanted a lot. He's just picking fights left and right. And Torrio was just like putting out fires. Fine, you can have some of Cicero. Okay, fine, no prostitution over here. He's, you know, just trying to keep the peace, right? Now, Capone doesn't like O'Banion. So he's kind of like, well, we should fuck up O'Banion. And O'Banion's like, yeah, you guys should try and come to war. And Torrio's like, no, we're just going to be cool and we're all going to make money. And then there's this guy, the president of the Union Siciliano. He was a respected community leader named Mike Merlot. And he was, he the little gangs fought sometimes, but he's like, if you guys big gangs go to war... It's going to destroy these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want that. And he was, you know, a respected community leader. So Torrio was like, look, all right, we're not going to do it. Mike Merlot don't want us to go to war. One of the big deal breakers, O'Banion starts to get into it with the Jenna brothers, who were Torrio allies. And it was over a betting bill. One of the Angelo, or one of the Jenna brothers goes to a spot, gambles a lot of money, loses. And O'Banion's like, I want that money. Capone was like, hey, let's just call it a wash. Because they would kind of do that for other gangs. It's like a cost of business. No, Banyo was like, no, fuck him. I want my money. So they start going to war with the Jennas. Well, they're looking at war with the Jennas. Torio's like really struggling to keep this together. Obanion finally comes to him and he says, you know what? All this pressure, it's too much. I'm done. So they have this big Stuyben brewery, which is like the one of the biggest breweries. And every gang has a piece of it as part of like the diplomatic thing. Obanion goes to Torio. He's like, you know what? I don't want beef with the Jennas. I'm sick of all this fucking prostitution. I'm just going to walk away. Give me $500,000 for my piece of the Stuyven Brewery, and I'm out. So Torio sees this as like, look, for one, that's a good deal. $500,000 is cheap. The number is about 6.5 now, if you guys are wondering. I actually looked it up this time. He's like, you know what? We, we'll get his portion of the brewery, and we don't have to worry about him. He's out of the game. This is a great deal. Pay him the money, let him walk away, get this piece of the brewery, and we're good to go. Well, what it really happened was O'Banion had found out that the brewery was about to be raided and broken down. So he made sure he got his last shipment out there. Then he meets fucking Torio 
at the time when he knows it's going to get raided to get the deal. So he gets his 500000 gets his money out of there. And as they're standing there, the place gets raided and they all get arrested, <laughs> including O'Banion. Okay. Now, the good news is O'Banion, for one, he had already paid off the right people and he knew it was about to happen. But no matter what, worst case scenario is he didn't have no prohibition violation. Johnny Torrio did. So it was a big hit. O'Banion, he gets the money, they get arrested, he walks away, and he's good to go. Johnny Torrio has to bail out him and six of his guys, and now he's facing these prohibition charges, and he's out to 500 grand. So then he gets pissed, so he goes to Al. He's like, you know what? Maybe about to turn you loose. But at the end of the day, he's like, you know what? I promised I wasn't going to break the peace. I fucking hate this guy, but the second I get a chance, this motherfucker's going to die. November 8th. Mike Merlot passed away from cancer. He had a huge funeral attended by thousands, including Mayor Deaver and Frankie Yale, who came in from Brooklyn for the funeral. Frankie Yale made a huge flower delivery from Dion O'Banion's Showfield Flower Shop. On November 10th, which is two days after Mike Merlot died, he shows up with two guys to pick up like a $20,000 bouquet he had ordered. He sees O'Banion, but O'Banion's always known to be strapped and dangerous. So he walks up to him and shakes his hand. As soon as O'Banion shakes his hand, he grabs his hand with both hands so they can't get it away. And the two guys he was with, who turned out to be the murder twins, Albert Anselmi and John Scalise, pull out their guns and they empty their guns into the Dion O'Banion. Mm. They shoot him in the throat and the chest and he dies on the floor of his flower shop. Once he was on the ground, they shot him in the back of the head to finish it off. After the murder of Dion O'Banion, Chicago exploded into gangland warfare. Jaime Weiss took over the Northside gang and began attacking the Jenna family as well as the Southside gang. Jaime Weiss was known as the only guy that Al Capone ever said he was afraid of. The ensuing war between the two would become known as the Chicago Beer Wars. Alright, what we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and take a quick smoke break, refill our drinks, and we'll be back in a minute. Say hello to the bad guy. Good guy coming last place. I spent a dope when I passed by. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. Good guy coming last place. I spent a dope when I passed by. I let my money at a fast pace. We was down bad. Spent my birthdays in the trap, we had to work with what we had She been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man Plus my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam, man. man And I don't need a hundred friends, I just want a hundred bands A hundred jugs, a hundred scams, ay, ay. So I don't money grabbed a hundred hams I don't money grabbed a bunch of And bands. I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the pistols. Fuck a judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental life. Ay. And I still keep it on me. Run into your big homie. First you meet your dead homie. Ay. Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy coming last place. You smell that dope when I pass by. Pass by. I like my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy.
the bad guy The good guy come in last place You smell that dope when I pass by I let my money at a fast pace Say hello to the bad guy The good guy come in last place You smell the dope when I pass by